Welcome back to the program. Back in 1969, Richard Nixon tried to obscure the difference between working class and affluent voters, particularly men, by portraying them all as part of a silent majority. He portrayed them as both heroes and victims of the tumultuousness of the period. In the 1968 campaign, Nixon praised the forgotten Americans, what he called the hard-working, tax-paying Americans whose values were under siege by protesters, rioters, and anti-poverty liberals. If we lost Vietnam, he argued, it was because we weren't tough enough. Even soldiers returning from Vietnam shouldered some of the blame. Reagan continued with similar themes in capturing what were then called Reagan Democrats. All of this was before and really a precursor to the profound impacts of feminism, civil rights, gay rights, globalization, growing income disparity, more women in the workplace, the loss of manufacturing, sex in the city, outsourcing, the technological revolution, the U.S. attacked on 9-11, the Great Recession, same-sex marriage, and the election of a black president. It's enough to disorient anyone, but most notably its greatest impact was on those most threatened, the standard bearers of the old status quo, white men, men who had stood on the wall trying to defend an old way of life, a cultural paradigm that was crumbling beneath their feet. With the help of political and talk radio demagogues manipulating and distorting the fear of change, it gave rise to the angry white men of today. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Michael Kimmel. He's a distinguished professor of sociology and gender studies at Stony Brook University. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Manhood in America and the Gendered Society. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Kimmel to the program to talk about Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era. Michael Kimmel, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks. Good to have you here. It is really interesting to look at the arc of the past 40, 45 years and, and really see how it's almost been inevitable that we've gotten to the point that we're at today with respect to the way white men are feeling angry. Well, you know, just just that long list as you were reading it, um, everything from globalization, gay rights, women's rights, sex in the city. I mean, the list that you that you read is is really is quite extensive, and you get an idea of just how much has changed in our society in the past forty years since Nixon, for example, made that original comment. And the arc to someone like Senator Lindsey Graham advising the the Romney campaign in in the 2012 uh, uh, presidential primaries that we need to, to mobilize more angry white guys as a political constituency because that's the base of the of the party. He said it's baffling. It's it, it's it's overwhelming. I mean, you can imagine. Um, a generation like uh, of, of my generation of baby boomer men, for example, or even younger men um, who who grew up thinking that the workplace was going to look like the set of Mad Men. You know, right. uh, the men all had the outer offices with the windows, and the women were kind of in a corral in the center. And one of the perks was you get your pick of any of the women there. That was what you know. That was what the workplace we thought looked like. And now we're walking into a completely different place. Um, and so a lot of guys, it's not that they're necessarily angry. They're confused. They're bewildered by this. The pace of change has been so dramatic. So I think that's part of what fuels the, the angry, white men, uh, angry white men as a kind of mobilized force. And, of course, politicians and talk radio hosts and many others have taken advantage of this anger, have taken advantage of the pain, and really yes. transformed it into a kind of anger at all of the social institutions that have changed. Right. 
Well, you know, that's the, that's the thing that I think is most interesting is you, you know, it, it's not inevitable that you could, uh, that you would feel anguish and, and anxiety and confusion by this bewildering change. That has to be carefully manipulated. For example, um, Rush Limbaugh is, is a master at this. You know, people call Rush, Rush's uh, show and they say, oh, Rush, I'm so upset. I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm really sad. I've lost my job. I, might, I can't pay the rent. My, you know, we might lose our house. You know, I'm really upset about this. And Rush says, you don't sound sad. You sound mad. And then he goes into, here's what you should be angry at. So, so it's very easy to take these kinds of emotions of, of anguish and manipulate them into rage and politicize it. Um, it's not inevitable. Uh, let me just say, I'll, I'll give you an example to, your, to you and your listeners of two angry white men who go in the other direction. It's not inevitable that they go to the right, you see. Mm -hmm. um, let me give you two examples, Tom Joad and Bruce Springsteen. Um, these are white men who are, who are the victims, uh, you know, who see themselves as the working, white working class, you know, downtrodden, outsourced, downsized, um, you know, completely the forgotten Americans. But why do they go to the left? Because they see their anguish in class terms. What they notice, for example, what Springsteen would notice, what, what Tom Jones, Jones certainly noticed, um, you know, in the, in, in, in the California Valley of the 1930s, what they noticed is that it is the class inequality that is the most dramatic and painful part of their life. Whereas if I could convince you right now that the problem that you have is not class, but race and gender, it's all these women, the women who are getting everything, it's all these people of color who are getting everything, it's all the immigrants that are getting everything, you'll go to the right. So it's, if you see your predicament in class terms, you can mobilize your anger leftward. If you see your predicament in, in, in race or gender terms, you'll move your, your anger to the right. This is the whole aspect of what's the matter with Kansas. You, you have so many people that, that are operating against their own economic self-interest. The other aspect of this is the degree to which we are seeing a greater lack of class mobility in society and the impact that that's having. Well, you know, both of these statements are, are entirely true. The first is, of course, we have never, let's be clear, we have never as a country been more gender equal, more racially equal, and more sexually equal than we are at this moment today. Now, that's not to say, let me be really clear, uh, that's not to say we don't have a long way to go. We are not there yet. But we, come on, let's face it, we've never been more equal than we are now. On the other hand, we have rarely, if ever, been as class unequal. So the dramatic income disparities that you just referred to are really the thing that I think drive a lot of people into this kind of despair and anguish. Now, if and then we're in a what's the matter with Kansas moment, because if you see this in class terms, you're going to blame the Koch brothers. You're not going to ally with them. But so so what the what the right wing has to do, what the what the corporate elites have to do is they have to figure out a way to manipulate that to blame the wrong people so that you don't blame the right people. Will this problem, though, solve itself simply in a generational sense? Because we certainly look at younger men in society today, and we see a very different attitude. Yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. This, this, 
again, two answers to this question. The first is, of course, the arc of history is, uh, it, it points in that direction. Um, you know, one of the reasons why same-sex marriage, for example, is nationally inevitable is simply demographic, as you point out. 75% of people under 30 support it, and 75% of people over 60 oppose it. So, you know, eventually it's a done deal. But, but my feeling is this, that, that what you're looking at um, is... These, the, the angry white men that I talk about is not a rising force in America. And in fact, it's a declining force. Mm-hmm. Most men, most white men, have very easily accommodated themselves to greater gender equality in their home lives and in their working lives than anybody might have predicted. And there are a couple of good reasons for it. One reason is we've accommodated ourselves to greater gender equality because it actually enables us to have better relationships with our kids, and we kind of like that. The other reason is very simple. It's a simple financial one. The average income for a family of four in 1973 was about $48,000. And in constant dollars, the average income for a family of four in the United States in 2013 is $48,000. It is exactly flat. Now, what is the difference between that family of four in 1973 and that family of four today? Mom's working. So this is a financial issue. This isn't an ideological one. We might want to live in a world like, you know, where where our wives don't have to go to work or any of that stuff, but that is just not financially possible for most men. So we've accommodated to, to it because we like our relationships with our partners and our wives. We like our relationships with our kids, and actually we need the money. Another aspect of this, though, is the way women are viewing this and how they're looking upon these men in this new paradigm. Well, I think I think the way to approach the the men that I describe here, for you know, I mean, I try to give a survey of a lot of different pockets of angry white men, um, the men's rights movement, the fathers' rights groups, uh, men who are violent against women. I talk about school shooters. Uh, rampage school shooters as angry white boys. Um, and then, of course, the last chapter is based on the extreme right, uh, my interviews with neo-Nazis and white mm-hmm. nationalists and white supremacists. So there's a whole bunch of different groups, all of whom are angry white men, but in different ways. Um, now, in each of these cases, women have responded in, 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 in different ways as well. Obviously, some of these groups, the men's rights groups, some parts of the father rights groups um, are explicitly anti-feminist. Um, they see women and women's equality as being the cause of their anguish and pain. Uh, on the other hand, there are some that don't, that don't see women as the problem. They see uh, minorities or immigrants or a government that gives everything to everyone else except to us um, as, a, as the problem. So there's a lot of different ways in which these groups of angry men approach their, their, their pain. Another aspect is the way men are portrayed in the media today. Talk a little about that, Michael. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that, that people, a lot of people get upset about is that the ways in which men are constantly portrayed as idiots and buffoons and, uh, you know, and, and failed patriarchs. And I think that we, we really do enjoy watching all of these men try so hard and fail so utterly. And, but the, on the one hand, this has been a consistent theme since the Honeymooners and Jackie Gleason yelling at Audrey Meadows, to the moon, Alice, and of course, you know, she runs the show. 
Uh, and uh, so it starts there and it continues through, you know, the Cosby Show and Home Improvement. And then there's a long list of all of these, you know, sort of failed patriarchs. And we like that, you know, but... But humor has historically been the way in which the powerless get back at the powerful. One of the reasons why so many of the great comedians in, you know, in our history have been African-American or, or Jewish, and then more recently, you know, gay and, and women, uh, gay, gay, LGBT people and, and women, is because um, it's always been a, a way for the powerless to have a voice, to get back at the powerful. But in a way, because we all can laugh at it, we go home a little bit relieved, there's a way in which um, we, you know, it, it sort of serves the reproduction of that, of that very power that we're criticizing. So I think that in a way, I, I, it doesn't worry me. And the other thing I want to say is, it, 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 you know, the media are not a monolith. For all of the terrible images and all of that, there are also some beautiful images that are, uh, that are portrayed in advertising and in media shows all the time that we often forget. I'm thinking, for example, of a commercial I recently saw for, uh, uh, for a beer, an imported beer from Ireland, in which a bunch of guys are playing wheelchair basketball. Hmm. And at the end, it's clear that only one of them is actually in a wheelchair. They all play for him. They all play in a wheelchair for him so that he, he, and it is the most beautiful kind of image of male camaraderie that doesn't require violence or hazing or any of the things that we worry about. It's, it, and I think that it's our job, that is to say, those of us like you and me who are, who look at the media, who are in the media, to remind, remind people that the media are not a monolith here presenting only one image, but rather there's a lot of different images, and it's our obligation, I say this as a parent of a young boy, uh, it's our obligation in a way to sort of find those alternative images and also foster them. As you talk to these quote-unquote angry white men about their grievances, about the issues that they have, many of the things we've been talking about, how did they talk about these issues with their sons? How do they see it for the next generation of young men? Yeah, well, um, I think they feel, uh, you know, in a lot of ways they, they think about their sons abstractly like that, but th- at their, their position is they are the last line of defense. They are the ones who are drawing the line in the sand and saying no more, no further. If we go any further, we lose everything. And it's not that they are, uh, not that necessarily they're all reactionary in, in, in any sense, but they want to make sure that the tide is now stemmed. This is, this is enough. Um, so there's a kind of feeling like we're doing this for the future, uh, for, the, for our sons, because uh, somebody's got to stand up for, the, for them. Somebody's got to stand up against this enormous tide that's about to roll over us. And that's really what I do see them as, as being, is they, they are the last, they, they see themselves as the last line of defense against a rolling tide, and they do sense, I think one of the things that fuels their anger, is they sense that that tide's uh, coming to shore is inevitable. And once they sense that it is inevitable, which clearly it is, from a historical perspective and every other way looking at the landscape today, once some of them get to that point of inevitability, is there a willingness or, or a point that they cross where they start to accept in some way this new reality, or is it a fight to the finish in their view? Um, 
it, you know, it depends. Uh, I, I think I, I think that they're they are a, a very vocal and a dec- in, it, in in their uh, volume, but their numbers are dwindling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reason for that is partly uh, because most men have very quietly and without great ideological fanfare simply accommodated themselves to greater gender equality in their relationships. And here's one of the most hopeful signs on that front that I could possibly say to you. Um, And that is the biggest change in young men's lives in the United States uh, is cross-sex friendships. Um, You know, when I started teaching 25 years ago, I would ask my students, how many of you have a good friend of the opposite sex? And I would almost, I would get maybe 10% hands because most students 25 years ago were of the Harry Met Sally generation. You know, women and men can't be friends because sex always gets in the way. Well, I ask, I go into my classes now and I teach very large classes um, and I walk in and I'd say, okay, how many, is there anybody in here who doesn't have a good cross-sex friend? I almost never see a hand anymore because they are all familiar with and comfortable with cross-sex friendships. Now, think of the politics of friendship. You make friends not with your boss, not with your servant. You make friends with your equals, with your peers. So my students, young people today, are more comfortable with, with gender equality in their personal relationships than any generation in the history of the world. And that seems to me to augur extremely well when these people enter the workplace and are far more comfortable with, with team building and colleagueship on an equal footing. I think sexual harassment will decline as this new generation moves, moves into the corporate world, uh, into the, into the work, work world. Um, I think that in our relationships at home, you see far more men doing far more child care, modestly more housework, than ever before. Um, and, the, and, you know, most men today are doing more child care and housework than their grandfathers could ever in their wildest imaginations have fantasized. So I think these are, these are the positive kinds of changes. So I do see this accommodation to greater gender equality at, without much ideology, but simply because it, it's more fun. It's, you know, we actually live better lives. We actually live lives where the people that we hang out with, the women, the, the, our, uh, the women friends, our men friends, are actually, you know, enrich our lives more because they're more our equals. In a broader framework, though, do we need to have a conversation about a redefinition of masculinity and really what that means in the 21st century? Well, I think, I think that that's a difficult question politically. I think if I were to approach men and say, you know what, the ideology of masculinity that you have uh, is a complete, it's completely terrible, let's get rid of it and start over. I don't think you'd get many takers. I think instead what we have to do is we have to create a conversation between, within the ideology of masculinity that we've inherited. And here's what I would say. I would say, I would ask you this, this question too. Um, you know, when you look in the mirror and you say, I am a good man, what does that mean to you? What, what do you think of? And my guess is most men, if they were to look in the mirror and say, you're a good man, that you say to yourself, you know, you give yourself the ideas of integrity, honor, responsibility, doing the right thing, standing up for the little guy, you know, being ethical. Um, these are the kind of the Homeric, Shakespearean, Judeo-Christian ideals we have about manhood. Now, if I were then to say to you, okay, what do you think of when I say be a man? Man up. 
You don't think of those things at all. You think of being tough, strong, never showing your feelings, never crying, getting rich, getting laid. That, those ideas are what I call masculinity. And I think every, most men are walking around with a kind of constant conversation between what's being asked of us by other guys to prove our masculinity, though be a man, man up thing, and the eternal values that we think of as essential to manhood, that, um, and those are in constant dialogue and in constant tension. And it seems to me that, that is, that's the place where I think we can be most creative and most involved with enabling men to say, you know, I want to live up to these standards that I proclaim as what it means to be a good man. I want on my deathbed to say to myself, I was a good man. That's important to us, I think. Except that those character qualities, those things that you talk about when one looks at the mirror and asks about being a good man, it's really about being a good person. There is no sense of propriety to men about those issues. There are issues across the board for women as well. Absolutely. Uh, that's, uh, that's entirely true. Uh, and, you know, I, I admit that when I grew up, um, for me, uh, uh, my, the formative book uh, that I read when I was in sixth grade was uh, John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles and Courage. Mm-hmm. And those were all men who did the right thing, despite the fact that it was going to cost them, and they knew it was going to cost them, uh, and they did the right thing anyway. And to me, that's what a man did. Now, I am perfectly prepared to say that's what I thought when I was, you know, 11. Today, I would say, uh, in retrospect, that's what a good person does. I completely get that that's not gendered. But I think that in my head, that's what it means to me still to have been a good person or a good man. And I think most of us want to be that. The question, I guess, in terms of how this plays out comes back to something you talked about earlier, and that really is how it plays out against the growing class divide in this country and the way in which those two things come together. And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we know the answer to that either. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me that we're going to have a sudden burst of responsibility from above. Um, and so my guess is um, that as much as people have pushed up uh, through, you know, in, in all all aspects of society, the fact that we are are so dramatically class unequal and so much more gender, race, and sexually equal, I think somebody's got to talk about what the relationship is between those two. Can greater class inequality actually, you know, sort of foster? greater social equality in those other areas, or when does that begin to break down? When do they turn on each other? I do think that that's the, the question, the question uh, of, of the next couple of decades in the United States is going to be how are we going to deal with the dramatic and growing class inequality. Michael Kimmel, the book is Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Great questions. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.